God of proclamation, I will build my life upon your love. It is our firm foundation. Amen. If you would, take your Bibles and stand and turn to Mark chapter 2. The beautiful thing about going verse by verse through passages of Scripture. When the messenger changes, the word remains the same. Amen. And so that's what we are um, we're hoping for this morning. The messenger this morning is different, but the word is the same. So if you look there in Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, the Bible says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them, and as he passed by, he saw Levi the son of Alphas sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. As he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed them. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw what he was, that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus, when he heard it, said to them, I'm very grateful for this statement, aren't you? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. All have sinned and fallen short of your glorious standard. The wages of sin is death. But we praise the Lord this morning that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The Bible tells us there's none righteous, not one. The Pharisees in this passage were standing on what they thought was righteousness, but all it was was condemnation. God, we have no right to be in your presence this morning except by the blood of Jesus. There's no rule following that gets us there. There's no dress code that gets us there. There's no mode or plan of worship that gets us there. What has brought us into your presence this morning is being led by the Spirit of God to put our faith and trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the remission of our sins. And so we stand before you this morning, led by your Spirit, righteous, declared so by your work, not ours. As we look at your word this morning, I pray you would speak clearly to our hearts that we would receive what you have to say this morning. God, make my words efficient. Help me to say only those things that you have prepared beforehand by your spirit. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You may be seated. One of the many things I cherish about the word of God is how uncomfortable it really can make me feel. The word of God is difficult to read sometimes. It really does make me feel uncomfortable, especially when I'm going through a season of selfishness, when I'm going through a season in my life where I am struggling with a recurring sin or struggling with a destructive habit. The Word of God is always there to quickly to is always there to quickly confront me of my sin and encourage me to turn away from it. If you read the Bible well, led by the Spirit of God. It's like a scalpel that will cut you, but it cuts with a purpose. 
It cuts to remove in us what would seek to destroy us. It's like the surgeon that comes in with his scalpel and removes the cancer that if left untreated would ravage our body and send us to a certain death. The word of God removes that in us that would seek to destroy in a similar way walking through the word together as a church is very important because not only does the word um, speak to us individually the word speaks to us corporately together as a body of believers and so when we come together and gather and worship and study God's word together not only is he speaking to us individually he is speaking to us as a church and we have to remember that one more time, and I'm going to the pulpit. No. <laughs> so, so anyway, we have to remember that the word of God speaks to us as a church, not just individually. As we step out together out of last week's text and into today's, we are reminded from verse 10 that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. That's what last week's message was all about. As you heard Pastor Brandon last week, he ended with the fact that Jesus and Jesus alone has the authority to forgive sins, and he proved that by healing the paralytic. What I would say this morning is not only does Jesus have the authority to forgive sins, Jesus has the authority to forgive the sins of those he wants to forgive. And now what does that mean? That sounds like a loaded statement. What that simply means is Jesus saves who he wants to save, and they may not look like us, they may not act like us, they may not be like us, but praise God, Jesus works to save people from every walk of life. So at the end of age, every tribe, every tongue, every nation would be worshiping him around his throne. Also, we learned from last week's text that Jesus is not just a miracle worker. Jesus is God. He's come in human form for the purpose of making broken humanity whole by taking our sin and giving us a new heart that seeks to worship him. So as we come to our text today in Mark chapter 2 verses 13 through 19, we realize it's written to show how the scandalous grace of God is completely different than a hopeless, legalistic, false religion. It's radically different. The scandalous grace of God brings hope to those who have no hope. It brings help to those who have no help. And over the last couple of Sundays, we have seen that Jesus intentionally reaches out to those in society, to those that society often leaves out. In chapter 1, verses 40 through 45, Jesus cleanses a leper. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Jesus heals a paralytic. And today, in verses 13 through 17, Jesus calls Levi to save in faith. Both the, all of the leper, the paralytic, and Levi are all social outcast and we can have compassion for the leper it's his illness that has separated him from society right it's his condition that's made society cast him aside we can have compassion for the paralytic because the paralytic is the one that um, whose condition keeps him from coming to Jesus so what did his friends have to do his friends had to bind him up dig a hole in the roof and lower him down we can have compassion for the paralytic but and here's the question I think for us today how much empathy do we have for people who we know by their own actions have put them in a position to suffer 
Is there empathy for those who make life choices that are opposite of what we would choose to do? Who dress differently, who look differently, who speak differently, who may have a different skin color, who may come from a different nation, legally or illegally, or illegally. Can I share with you my failure? My failure this past week, Monday, we're going to Walmart pick up some things for Tracy and Drew's trip. We turned in the Walmart there at Rocky Mount, and I saw the green car with the hood up, and there stood a woman holding up a sign that's saying that she needed help. And her car was broken down, and that she needed help. And it's become such a commonplace thing in Rocky Mount recently that I just looked past it and drove right on by. Went, parked the car, went inside, got what we needed to from Walmart, came out, and as we came out, uh, that lady and her husband, or husband, that lady and her friend, I don't know, could have been her husband, and my own self-righteous, horrible self, I assumed it wasn't, they were walking in, and I heard just enough of their conversation to know that Everything that had been given to them was apparently a sham. That what they were going to go purchase in Walmart had nothing to do with getting their car fixed, had nothing to do with getting uh, them onto where they were heading, had absolutely nothing to do with what she was saying was wrong was on that sign. And I had no compassion for them. I had no concern for them. I didn't care how they got into the situation they were in, no care for where they were going to end up or what they were experiencing. If I'm going to be totally honest with you this morning, in fact, I really resented them. And my thought was, how dare they do that? How dare they stand out there and make themselves out to be in a condition that they're not in? How dare they lie? I'm sitting there thinking this, how dare they lie and steal these people's money, money that they work for? just so that they could go into Walmart and spend it on what they wanted to and complain about the fact as they were walking into Walmart that they didn't get enough money to get what they had hoped to get. And my heart was hard toward them. God's word will not let our heart continue to stay hard. God's word confronts us, and it confronts us with the compassion of a Savior that saves those that we often overlook and saves those that we may think are beyond saving. So as we look at today's text, we see three main actors in this text. First is Levi, along with all the other tax collectors and sinners. We see Jesus, and then the next group of characters we see the scribes and the Pharisees. So first we're going to begin with Levi and the tax collectors. Once you understand, and you know this, if you've been reading your Bible for a while, Jewish people did not associate themselves with tax collectors and sinners. This group of people were known for scamming people out of their money. They were known for setting up tax booths around, the, around ports and especially around Capernaum. There would have been a booth sitting there, and Levi would have been collecting taxes for the Roman government. And as a Jew, that was about the most scandalous thing you could do. That was about the most treacherous thing you could do. It would be kind of like 
um, someone who was an American choosing to align themselves with ISIS or another terrorist group. It would be on that level of treason. They scammed their own people, not just strangers. They didn't just scam people who did not, who were not Jews, but actually their sole purpose was to collect tax money from Jews. And so they were especially despised because they were Jews who joined themselves to Herod in Rome in an effort to collect taxes. And they made their living by overcharging what was owed. So, for example, if the futural family owed, this is ridiculously low, I'm just trying to keep the math simple for my simple art brain, okay? But if the futural family owed $10 in taxes, the tax collector would charge 15 or maybe 20 He would pocket the extra and pay what was owed. No one likes a tax collector but we really don't like them when they are known for collecting more than required and keeping the extra for themselves. The pillar commentary on the Gospel of Mark says this about tax collectors. A Jew who collected taxes was disqualified as a judge or a witness in court means he was not trustworthy. He was expelled from the synagogue means he couldn't interact with other Jews, he couldn't worship, and, to call, and he was a cause of disgrace to his family. The touch of a, a tax collector rendered a house unclean. Jews were forbidden to receive money and even alms from tax collectors since revenue from taxes was deemed robbery. Jewish contempt of tax collectors is epitomized in the ruling that Jews could lie to tax collectors with impunity, a ruling incidentally with which both the houses of Hillel and Shammai uh, who normally stood poles apart would agree that would basically mean you could lie to a tax collector, get away with it, and the Democrats and the Republicans would say it was okay. Okay? That's basically what that's saying. Tax collectors were tangible reminders of Roman domination, detested alike for its injustice and Gentile uncleanness. Not a few Jewish extremists, including one among Jesus' own disciples, considered submission to the Roman yoke as well as its system of taxation and act of treason to God. Can you imagine Peter? He's just given his house, just had the roof of his house torn into, and as Jesus is passing by the tax collector, he asks him to follow him. Could you imagine? But Jesus knew who he was talking to. He knew this man stole. He knew Levi was a fraud. However, Jesus saw in Levi something I, fail, I so often fail to see in people like him. Jesus saw someone who was broken. Jesus saw someone in bondage to sin. And in spite of Levi's fraud, in spite of Levi's deception, in spite of Levi's scams, Jesus loved him. And Jesus offered him an invitation to follow him. And the Bible tells us in our text that we just read that Levi accepted. Jesus' invitation to follow me wasn't just an invite to hang out for a while or to grab lunch. To follow in this text, all, the, to follow how it's used in this text always means saving faith. There's not an instance in the, in the uh, New Testament 
where when Jesus calls out someone to follow him, he's actually calling them to repentance and faith. He's calling them to leave the life that they had previously and to begin following him. In order to follow Jesus, one had to leave their current situation, and that's exactly what Levi did. He saw in Jesus something greater than the life he was making for himself. Levi, the treasonous, thieving fraud, saw the reality of his own sin and chose to follow something, someone greater than himself. He chose to follow Jesus. And I believe what Levi did after he follows Jesus is really instructive for us all. See, the only social group a tax collector could fit into would have been those known as sinners. The worst of the worst. Also from the Pillar Commentary, the Mishnah or the oral uh, tradition of the scribes and Pharisees describes sinners as var variously as gamblers, moneylenders, people who race doves for sport, people who trade on the Sabbath year, thieves, the violent, shepherds, and of course, tax collectors. And so one of the strongest signs of Levi's saving faith is that he would not let his friends continue on without introducing them to Jesus. Jesus, who so lovingly and with compassion offered Levi the invitation to follow him, Levi then brought that same Jesus into his circle of friends, a circle of friends who were lost, a circle of friends who were frauds, a circle of friends who would have been people that if they would walk in the doors of this church right now, we would probably turn up our noses and say, why are they here? But yet, here we see Levi bringing Jesus to his friends. Levi threw a party and invited Jesus to come. If you look at Mark chapter 2 at verse 15, the second part of that, it says, Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And the interesting thing is that last segment there, it says, For there were many who followed him. So the picture here is not only does Levi come in and say, I'm going to follow Jesus, but, Jesus, but Levi finds his friends and says, you need to follow Jesus too. And here he's going to be in my house, we're going to throw a party, and we're going to sit down and we're going to eat together. And what you need to do is listen to this man's words and listen to the hope that he offers. And as Jesus came into the house and reclined and ate with them, many tax collectors and sinners many of the lowest of the low of society put their faith and trust in Jesus. See, this grace of God is scandalous. It will not leave out anyone, no matter what I think about them, no matter what you think about them, whether we put illegal in the front of their status or not, God cares about them. And God wants to save them. And God wants to get the gospel into their lives. Bless God, he even wants to save a Democrat. And I say that jokingly because I'm just going to be honest, there's nobody here but us looking at my Facebook feed this week from some people in this room. I don't know if we honestly think that. <clears throat> I told you it's a word for us. The grace of God is scandalous and it won't leave out anyone. It won't leave out anyone, no matter what I think about them, no matter what you think about them, no matter what their political, no matter where they land on the political spectrum, God wants to save them. 
question is, do we? <laughs> Which brings us to the next character in this account, Jesus. Jesus is walking down by the sea, a crowd in tow. He's ready for his next teaching session. The, the concept here is the crowd's ready to be taught. The crowd's ready for the next show, the next miracle. The crowd's ready to see something, Jesus do something amazing again. And what does Jesus do? He passed by and reached out to a social outcast. This time it wasn't an illness or physical disability. Jesus, knowing the wickedness of Levi, offered him an invitation to follow him. And that's not different than John the Baptist, by the way. I want you to understand this. John the Baptist did the same thing. He called sinners and tax collectors to repent and and, um, turn from their sin. But what Jesus did here is he didn't just call them to repent. Jesus did something that we often, that I know I fail to do regularly, Jesus invested his life into people that were radically different than him. He ate a meal in a very personal setting with other tax collectors and sinners. You could eat a meal with a stranger, but it was never reclining at the table. If you ate a meal with someone you didn't know that well, you would actually sit up, kind of like we do. But when you entered a meal and it was with someone that... um, if it was someone you didn't know, you would never recline on the floor. Because what a Jewish person would do, the table would be laid out before them, and they would kind of recline with their feet out behind them. And that was a symbol of acceptance. That was a symbol of saying, hey, you're like me, and I'm like you. And so for Jesus to do this, the Pharisees and scribes were right in their mind by saying, who is this man that would eat with such people? There's a difference between giving someone food and taking the time to actually eat with them. Anyone can pay for a meal, but Levi didn't need money. But what he needed was Jesus. I'm very thankful this morning that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Aren't you? I mean, can you look at your own life and see that your wickedness was just like Levi's, not worse? Can you look at your own life and see that I was no closer to Jesus than someone like Levi who scammed the people around him, who robbed, who stole? Can you see that we're no different than that, that poor woman that was standing outside of Walmart? And all she was in, and what she was doing was scamming us. And I didn't even have the compassion to even mention Jesus to her or even look her in the eye or show her any type of common decency. And what do we do? We do the same thing. Jesus is a friend of sinners, and I'm so grateful he was my friend when I needed him. This new new religious teacher, the one who's burst on the scene, who's healing people, the one who obviously had the hand of God on him, is not eating with the wealthy. He's not eating with the influential He's not eating with other religious leaders. He's not even eating with the politicians. Jesus here is eating with the lowest of the low, and he's a friend of sinners, praise the Lord. He is a friend of sinners. The final main characters we see in this account are the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees were a group of religious elites. They had us by so much more. They've memorized a lot of scripture They knew the word of God inside out. 
What is so concerning about the Pharisees is that they knew the word of God but had no clue about the heart of God. They could quote you any scripture of the Old Testament, basically, especially of the first five books. They had no idea what God was up to in this world. It's amazing to me that they could know scripture so well and yet be so clueless as to what God was doing in the world around them. They thought that the true path to God was based on how good one could be, and they gloried in their own righteousness. Their knowledge made them prideful. They could not see their own shortcomings, but had no problem seeing the sin of others. They elevated their traditions and put them on the same level as Scripture. In other words, what God had said was not enough. His word was not sufficient. So the Pharisees added many rules and dis- many rules that were designed to increase their power over the people. They used their knowledge of God to judge and condemn. In their own minds, they were much better than anyone else. And here in this passage, there's a huge warning for us. And here's the warning. As Jesus is walking by Levi, he offers an invitation to Levi to follow him, but he looks at the scribes and Pharisees and does not offer such invitation. He does not. And I think that's a warning for us. In verse 17 it says, And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so what Jesus is saying here is God hasn't come for those who don't think they need him. That would be the Pharisees. God hasn't come for those who in their own self-righteousness exalt themselves above other people and think they're better than other people just because of their political ideology or think they're better than other people because of their nationality or to think they're better than other people because they come from the greatest nation on earth. No, what Jesus does here is he actually shows them that God doesn't come for people who think they're righteous. God comes for those who know they're not. Can I just say at the risk of making you really mad at me that we're living in a day of self-righteousness? Knowing I was preaching this text this morning, looking through the news throughout the week, the self-righteousness of send her back, God help us. Who are we as a people to even think such a thing? And to have so many people applauding that and thinking that's good. God help us. Where does that self-righteousness come from that we would have that thought? And I, if, if you participate in that, I'm not judging you because I had the same thought on Monday when I walked past that woman holding the sign. Amen? I'm not sitting in here judging you, but I'm saying that Jesus Christ of Nazareth would be at the border, not at a Trump rally. Wickedness is rampant in our culture, and it's not just one side. Don't hear me. It's all sides. It's not just one party. It's all parties. It's it's in my life. It's in our lives. There are so many things about our culture that are just plain horrible. If we're not careful, we start to think that God doesn't want to have anything to do with certain people within our culture because they're not like us. This passage won't let our hearts go there as individuals or as a church. 
if you're going to be honest to what this passage of scripture is saying is that Jesus actually goes to those who need him most. Jesus actually goes to those who have the least. That Jesus actually goes to those who know they need him. So when you picked up your bulletin this morning, there was an insert there. On one side's blank, that's where you're supposed to be taking notes. Hopefully you haven't written horrible things about me this morning. I'm just trying to show the heart of the passage. I promise I am. There's no agenda here. And if you flip that passage, if you flip that piece of paper over, there's some questions on the back of that. And when we read texts like this, I think what the Lord, what the Holy Spirit of God is leading us to do, I really do believe this, is to ask ourselves this question. And the question is not, am I a tax collector or a sinner? The question is, am I a Pharisee? Do I have the heart of a Pharisee living inside of me? So if you have that passage, if you have that piece of paper, you can take it out and follow with me there, or the questions will be up on the screen. Question number one. Is the life I live consistent with what I say I believe? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Do you really believe he loves the world? Do you really believe that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life? Does your life, is your life consistent with that? Do I have higher expectation of others than I do myself? What that simply means is do I expect people to behave better than I behave? Do I expect people to do things that I don't do? Is the person I present myself to be on Sunday the same person that goes to work on Monday? Do I have empathy for those who are suffering, even if their suffering is the result of their own actions? Well, they chose to come here. It's their fault. I don't have got nothing to do with me she chose to to be standing out there holding that sign what she's drinking and what she's smoking and what she's shooting up hey you know that's causing her to not have any money but you know what the actions of the tax collectors and sinners they were intentional they were deliberate and Jesus reached out to them and Jesus cares for them just like he cares for those whose actions in the midst of brokenness does not affect if Jesus is reaching out to them. In fact, their very brokenness and the signs that they are broken is what Jesus uses to know that. And what we need know, their actions are what we need to know to show that they're broken. That didn't make any sense. What I'm trying to say is we can look at their lives until they're broken and they need Jesus. And yet we pass by. When someone hurts me, do I really want to extend mercy and forgiveness? Or do I want to see them pay for their actions? Serves them right. They shouldn't have done that. Have you ever had that thought? Here's another one. When something changes at church, does it make me angry? Do I grumble and complain about the changes? Well, it's just not what it used to be. How do I treat people who confront me when I sin against them? Do I listen to them and consider what they say, or do I dismiss them or get angry with them? How does what you keep compare to what you give away? 
How does what you keep compare to what you give away? I'm not just talking about in the offering plate on Sunday. No, no, I'm talking about how does what you keep reflect your generosity? Do I emphasize obedience in one area of my life while ignoring a completely different area? In other words, do you have a pet sin in your life that you're not going to repent of, you're not going to turn on, no matter what God shows you? You're going to hold on to that sin and you're not going to repent of it. Do I do the same in others? And I put on my copy of this, just because my sin is different doesn't mean it's better. Just because my addiction is different doesn't mean it's better. One more I've added since Thursday morning. Are you in the habit of posting things on social media that are ungracious to those who think differently than you? Are any of these convicting? It was hard for me to write these because I know in almost every one I was going, that's me. God, that's me. I expect so much more of other people than I do myself. It's me. So many things in my own life I'm so arrogant and proud of, I don't want to repent of. That's me. No, I don't have empathy for people who are suffering. Especially if the result, especially if their suffering is a result of their own actions. No, I don't have that. And so, what this passage did for me as I was studying, and I pray it's doing for you this morning, is not making you angry, not making you think that uh, I'm the most horrible thing on earth, which would be a Democrat, right? I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican either, by the way. not one of those horrible people. What I am is I try to do everything I can to follow Jesus. And when God convinces me that I've sinned, God help me, I want to repent. I want to turn. I want to show saving faith by saying, God, I don't want to be that way anymore. God help me, I do not want to be that way anymore. And if you're going through this list, if you sit there and looked at this list and said, God help me, that is me. What he just read on that question on the screen is me. God help me, please, Lord Jesus, help me repent of that sin and turn from it. If that's you, praise the Lord, Jesus will never walk away from you. He will never turn his back on a heart that desires to repent and believe the gospel. He will never turn his back on someone that comes to him and saying, yes, I will forsake that and follow you. He will never turn his back on you. He will say, follow me. He will say everything that you give up, give up for my sake, whether it's houses or lands or brothers or sisters or fathers and mothers, I will multiply in the age to come. He will say that to you. But this morning, if you look at these questions or anything I've said this morning, and with a hard heart, a heart of a Pharisee says, well, that's just not the place for that. I can't believe he said that. I can't believe he's asking me these questions. That's not right. How dare he do that? This isn't what church is supposed to be about. Can I beg you to turn from that attitude? Can I tell you not to have the sinful hard-heartedness of a Pharisee? Can I beg you this morning to say Jesus is so much greater than your self-righteousness? There's no hope there. 
There's no hope found as you look down your nose at someone else, no matter what country they're from, no matter what circumstance they have in life. There is no hope when you exalt yourself. When you exalt yourself and look down on other people and judge them and condemn them, or you refuse to listen to what God's word is saying in your heart, I'm not even sure there's evidence there of saving faith. I don't say these things this morning because I'm mad at anybody. I don't say these things this morning because I believe God is mad at anybody in this room. I ask these questions this morning because God wants so much better for us. God wants so much better for his church. God wants a church that's going to do what's necessary to reach out to those people who don't know him. And if that means change the music, so be it. If that means change the pews, so be it. And I'm not coming from an agenda. I'm just saying stuff that people typically get mad about in church. I've grown up in church my whole life. I grew up in a church. We had to vote on a vacuum cleaner. If there's screens on the wall, who cares? If there's chairs instead of pews, who cares? If something's a different color, who cares? If the bulletin looks different, who really cares? If the logo's different, who cares? If somebody's wearing a tie or not, or a sport coat or not, or if they're dressed up, smelling clean, or coming in wearing rags, smelling horrible, who cares? I can tell you who cares. God is more concerned about the person coming in wearing nothing than he is with us wearing everything. You know what God's concerned about is, is Calvary Baptist Church willing to do what's necessary to reach those around us? Or are we going to be scribes and Pharisees? We can't make, we can't be something corporately that we're not individually. And so this morning, it is a heart felt beckoning out of love for your soul I said would you examine yourself this morning and see if you have any hatred toward anyone anyone even someone you haven't ever met if there's hatred there would you be willing to confess that as sin before a holy righteous God this morning I'm going to pray, and the music's going to play. And normally I would be standing here receiving anybody that would come. But the first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to get on my knees. I'm going to ask God to forgive me. Because this week, I had the opportunity to give somebody Jesus, and I blew it. I don't know where that lady is right now. I blew it. I don't want to blow it up. I don't want to mess it up again. And so, I just want to ask you to stand. And let's bow our heads.